0: Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter. We're to chapter 4, verse 8 tonight. It's a study entitled Culture Shock, and uh, glad that you made it. And uh, those of you online, we welcome you. We always have a good group that watches uh, sometimes during the week after Wednesdays, but anyway, whenever you're watching and joining us, we welcome you as well. Tonight is the last Wednesday night that we will be having before Christmas and so we'll, after tonight, take a three-week break, a three-Wednesday break, December 20th, 27th, and January 3rd. We will not be meeting on Wednesday nights, but then we will be back on January the 10th. We are to the final um, 19 verses of the book of First Peter, and so we will finish that at the end of January after we start back. So anyway, glad that you're here in our final week before we get to Christmas. Let's pray together, and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your Word together. Your Word is truth, it is life. Uh, God, it is exactly what we need. It's it's God-breathed, it's you speaking to our hearts every time we open it up. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that you would speak to our hearts what you want us to know and help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be, even if it involves suffering during persecution. I pray that, God, we would be the people that you want us to be. Lord, we thank you for everyone here tonight, for those joining us online as well, that your presence would be in this place as we study your word. The Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight. Thank you for the Christmas season, what it means to us, and the birth of our Savior. And we're thankful for Jesus, what he's done for us. And uh, we pray in his name tonight. Amen. All right, turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will look at verses 8 through 13. So... Let me remind you what's going on, because it makes a lot more sense what Peter says, especially tonight when you know what's going on. Persecution is about to begin in earnest for believers who are living on the Black Sea in what's known as Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Asia Minor, the year is 63 A.D. So Jesus crucified on 30 A.D., so it's been about 33 years since Christ been crucified and resurrected so they are living these are gentile believers living in asia minor just south of the black sea there the roman empire that they're living in does not understand the christian faith they misunderstand christianity and so they saw christianity as something uh, kind of like voodoo uh, they it, it was weird it was odd it was it was uh, something that they just kind of uh, uh, stayed away from the christians were odd people to them And they accused Christians of many things because the faith was misunderstood. Remember, we talked about they were accused of being cannibals, Christians were, by the Romans. Uh, The reason, of course, the Lord's Supper, you're drinking blood, you're eating the body. And so they took it literally, and so the accusations that Christians were cannibals. Also, that they would have wild sexual orgies during the worship services because they call their fellowships love feasts. Well, they took it the wrong way, and so once again, Christians misunderstood. They were accused of being unpatriotic to the Roman Empire, because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They worshiped the one true God of heaven, is what they said, and so they did not um, worship the Roman gods accused of being unpatriotic. Christians were also accused of, of incest. Uh, call each other brothers and sisters. Even husband and wives call themselves brothers and, and sisters. And so therefore it must be cases of incest. And so all kind of accusations from the Roman Empire against Christianity. They said they were anti-family and because your loyalty was to Christ more than your family. And so many things they were accused of. And so there are a lot of misunderstanding about Christians in the Roman Empire. So, one year after Peter wrote this letter, 64 AD, Nero began in earnest to start persecuting Christians. He hated Christianity anyway, felt like it would be better if it was not in the empire, and so he wanted to get rid of it. So, as you know from the history books, 64 AD, Nero set fire to Rome. He burned his own city down for a couple of reasons. One to get divert the attention off of yourself. Things are not going well in the empire, so you try to divert attention away from you if it's not going well with you. And that's exactly what he did. Second reason, he wanted to build this new palatial complex with a huge statue of himself, and so he wanted the land to do it. So he burned his own city down, city of Rome, 64 A.D. But he blamed it on the Christians. It was the Christians' fault. They're not worshiping Roman gods, and so the Roman gods were angry that the Christians didn't worship them, and so they burned the city down, the gods did, and so he blamed it on the Christians that gave him an excuse to start persecuting Christians in earnest. So he did. He started literally burning Christians at the stake. He started to, uh, as we talked about, he would put them on poles, dip Christians in oil, hot oil. Uh, set them on fire, lined his garden with Christians on poles where they literally provided light for his parties at night. Uh, he pitted wild animals against Christians in public domain. And so uh, Christian persecution really started ramping up one year after Peter wrote this letter. So Peter knew it through the Holy Spirit, he knew that persecution's coming. So he writes to prepare the believers. And those churches there in Asia Minor for persecution that's about to begin. So that's kind of the background as to what he says. He's preparing them for persecution. So far, persecution's been subtle. Uh, It hasn't been overt, hasn't been illegal. But one year later, all of that is going to change. So, having said that, uh, we saw last week, chapter 4, verse 7, he begins by saying, The end of all things is at hand. Was he talking about the parousia, end of the world, or was he talking about you? You're about to be persecuted, and many of you are going to be killed, and maybe he was talking about you are going to meet your end. Maybe so. The end of all things is at hand. Verse seven, therefore be self controlled and sober minded. Literally means to be balanced. Self controlled. Serious-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so we ended last week by saying, have you ever thought about your prayers being hindered by your attitude as you pray? If you're not self-controlled, if you're angry in your prayers, uh, if you're a little frustrated in your prayers, how does that affect your prayers? He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then he closed. Well, he didn't close. We closed. And so we pick up with verse 8 tonight. More advice he gives to them as persecution is looming just um, a year away. So let's look at some advice he gives them when persecution is about to hit. First of all, number one tonight, verse 8, keep loving one another. Above all else, keep loving one another. Look what he says, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins now let's talk about that for a moment the one of the commands he gave them as persecution looms you need to keep loving one another now you and I would probably say yeah I I know I need to, to love everybody and I do for the most part But you know, if I don't love as much as I should, okay, that's well, that's one of the. Hey, if that's the worst thing I do, then I'm all right. We give it a lower priority. Peter gave loving one another a higher priority. So did Jesus. They will know you by your love. We look at that and go, yeah, I could be more loving, but I don't go get drunk and I don't go, you know, do drugs, and uh, I'm faithful to my spouse. And we start looking at all the things we do, and we kind of emphasize the fact we really don't love as earnestly as we should. So, Peter gave it a higher priority. Now, look, look at what he said, love one another. I would have expected him to say, love a lost world that hates you. That's what Jesus did. Love those people that are going to persecute you. Jesus said that. Bless those that persecute you. So I would have expected him to say, Love those people out there that's about to take your head off. But he said, Love one another. He didn't mention them. He said, Love each other. You must love the ones with whom you're going to spend eternity with. Love those. Now, why did he say above all? Why didn't he just say keep loving one another? He just says above all. Now, he's not saying here by saying above all, it doesn't mean you love before you go to church or you love before you read your Bible or you love before you pray. He's not saying that's the greatest discipline. He's saying priority-wise, make it a priority to exercise love in the fullest. So, above all things you do, not first or in place of, but above all, keep loving one another, and then notice that word, earnestly. It's a fascinating word. It's translated earnestly in the ESV. It's it's in the Greek, it's the ektinous, is the Greek word. It's a predicate adjective and literally uh, means with. Passion with with intensity. Love one another, church members, with intensity. Now, in biblical Greek, it's called Koine Greek. It's a slang. Uh, it's not. It's a little different than you know. Just as Texan is a little different at times than English. Oki is too. Well, Koine Greek was slang uh, for Greek, and so. In, in non-biblical Greek, which was classical Greek, the word ectinus earnestly was used by a lot of different writers in a lot of different ways. Ignatius, Polybius, Aeschylus, uh, Philo used the word ectinus extensively in his writings. They all used the word to either describe one of two things. A horse in full gallop, running as fast as they can go, Love in full gallop, fast as you can go, hard as you can love. Or they used the word at tennis in athletic games. It was the picture of a runner at the finish line stretching to get across first. So the word literally means stretch. So now Peter takes a non-biblical word and applies it to the church context and describing how we should love one another. We should love one another intensely stretching to love when they're unlovely. Doing all you can to strain to love. Exert to the limit. Because sometimes other believers have shortcomings that uh, make them hard to love. Sometimes other Christians have sins that make it where we slack off in our love for them. Sometimes those sins and failures make them really difficult to love. And whenever that's the case, you need to strain harder at loving them. You see, the fault isn't with them, it's with you. He didn't say, now don't do things that make people not love you. He didn't say that. He said, you love them straining earnestly. Now, we think of, we think of commands like this, and we start to think, do I love people? And we go, yeah, and we start thinking of people we like. I sure, I love people. Well, so and so and so and so and so. And you start thinking of oh, all those people in church you like. What about those people in church you don't like? And they don't get pious. Everybody has them. <laughs> what about those people in church you don't like? And they do things that make it hard for you to love them. Do you go the extra mile and strain like a runner at the finish line to love them as you should? That was the command. Now, notice here he says, Love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean by that phrase? Covers, it's the veil, it's the word calypto. It veils a multitude, plethos. We get the word plethora from it, a plethora of sins. Is he saying that you are to, when somebody sins against you, you're to cover that instead of forgiving it? No. He's not saying, oh, cover everybody else's sins, act like it didn't happen. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that if you forgive others their sins, that's all you need to do. No, your sins need forgiven as well. Those are a couple of ways this has been interpreted in the past, and it's been interpreted Wrongly. Peter was not saying we should ignore sins and cover up wrongdoings of other people where hiding them means forgiving. No, no. He he wasn't saying either that our sins are covered if you love others like you should because 1 John 1 9 says we are to confess our sins. The kind of person who loves like this, Peter said, doesn't nitpick, is willing to forgive, has the best. It, the per, other person's best interest in mind, and is committed to other church members as well. R.C.H. Linsky says this about this passage, quote, love hides from sight the faults of another person. Hate is the opposite. Hate cries about in the lives of other people trying to discover a sin of a brother or a sister and then broadcast it and even exaggerates it and then gloats over it that's what hate does love hides the fault and forgives and goes on listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this verse Where love abounds in a Christian fellowship, many small offenses and even some larger ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking in a church, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. Conflicts abound, all to the perverse delight of Satan end quote. So, love characterizes who we are. And whenever people offend you, hide it, forgive it, forget it, and move on. And you know, if every one of us did that, there would be a lot fewer problems in churches, wouldn't there? So, it's a strong verse, verse 8. But now look at verse nine. Number two, show hospitality without grumbling. Number nine, verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this is kind of an odd um, odd commandment. Is there a backstory that helps explain it? Well, there is. In this day, Christians were forced to often flee their homes because of persecution, flee their cities, go on the road, go to other places. And many times they would go to other communities because of the persecution where they were. Because of that, they would often be left destitute. So Peter was saying, as you have those people show up at your door or in your community, from other places that are believers in Jesus and persecution has made them flee where they lived and and they're destitute, you take those people in. Give them what's necessary to live. Give them what's necessary to transact business. Help them find work. And if their journey is to go on, help them on their journey. And one way to demonstrate love from verse 8 is to offer hospitality in verse 9. Christians were to open their homes to others in need and do it without grumbling. Now, many Christians in this day did this and pagans, lost people, noted that they did that And pagans even started to say in ancient Christian communities, when they witnessed this, my, how Christians love one another. And that was the reputation they had among lost, is that, boy, they love each other. They take care of their own. And Peter says that we are to take care of our own. Show hospitality without grumbling. That word is interesting. Gongissimos is the Greek word. It means grudgingly. It means to mutter under your breath. So, don't entertain somebody. All the time, all the while, you're muttering under your breath and complaining about doing it as a sign of displeasure. Now, some people in the early church helped others, but they complained about it. They grudgingly did it because when you take somebody into your home, it can get expensive and it can get burdensome and it can get irritating. It's being honest. And that's what they experienced. And they began to complain and grumble about doing that. So Peter says, show hospitality, but don't complain about it. I know some of you know the story of uh, Corey ten Boom. Um, the, during the, during uh, Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, her parents lived in the Nether- Netherlands. 1940 to 1944, her father was a watchmaker and had a shop and, uh, in, in Harlem, Netherlands. And they had a little room at the back that they would take in Jews from being persecuted by the Nazi the Nazis, and, and they knew how many of this little room would hold, and they would pack them in there and take them in and show hospitality until uh, until it was safe, and they'd send them on, and they saved over the course of five years, from 1940 to 1944, they saved 800 Jews just a one little room at a time until they were discovered, and then, of course, they were put in prison where Where some family members died when the Nazis finally figured out what they were doing, but they cut a hole in a wall, and they hid them in this hole in the extra room where they could, because they just felt like this is what God would have us to do. That is an extreme example, obviously, but what he's talking about here was extreme at times in this culture as well. The way you show love often is to show hospitality. Now, in some cultures that are strong family or strongly family-oriented, you don't bring strangers into your house, and they didn't then either. It would be somewhat shocking to do that. So Peter is saying then, fellow believers are your family. So God's great love has made you a single family. So by taking other believers in, you would also bring in, taking in your own family because they are a family. And what's interesting is, in the Roman Empire, if you aided Christians, much like Nazi Germany, if you aided Christians, you yourself were persecuted often for it later on. And Peter might have had that in mind as well as he's writing, because later on it would get dangerous to bring Christians into your home. Now let's go to number three on your outline, verses 10 and 11. Third piece of advice, use your giftedness. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's look at these two verses right quick. Verses 10 and 11, he talks about using our spiritual giftedness. Now, we just finished up a sermon series uh, recently uh, on Sunday mornings about spiritual gifts. We covered verses 10 and 11 the last Sunday morning. We talked, every Christian we saw has a spiritual gift, has at least one Maybe you have more than one. Nobody has all of them. We have the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has decided we should have. Not ones you decide you want, but ones He has decided that He wants you to have. Those gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. They're not for your glory. They're for the church's edification or building up. So what he tells us is, as each one has received the gift the word received is interesting that he uses there it's it means one to whom property has been entrusted think about this Peter saying God has entrusted to you a spiritual gift it's his property and he gave it to you to use so you need to be using your spiritual gift God entrusted it to you to use as you've received, he says, the spiritual gift, we are to use those to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Have you ever thought of yourself as being a steward of grace? The grace God's given you stewarding it. Whenever you hear the word stewardship, you usually think about money. Oh, he's going to start talking about tithing again. It's stewardship time. But stewardship is more than money. In fact, the word steward that's used here is really interesting. It's a combination word of oikos, which means house, and nomos, which means law. So stewardship means laws of the house. House laws. What are house laws that God has? Certain things He has for His people within the house of the family of God. Here are things that you need to manage well. And one of those is... The gift, spiritual gift, that he's given you. Of the varied grace, the, the uh, polycolos, the multifaceted, multicolored, literally means grace that God has given to you. So, Peter's saying, You've received grace, you now need to minister grace to other people. Grace that comes to us must move through us that's the way god designed it the dead sea if you're familiar with it it is the dead sea because there's no life in it microorganisms all and it's one of the reasons it's dead is because it's got all these mineral deposits and all the, uh, not just uh, salt, but all kind of minerals that make it where life can, it cannot exist there. And one of the reasons all of it collects there is because there's no outlet. You've got an inlet from the Jordan River, but no outlet. And so it stagnates right there. It becomes dead. So whenever you receive grace, receive grace, receive grace, but you never extend grace You become a spiritual dead sea. It just stagnates where you are. So grace that is given to us must then be extended through us. And that's the spiritual giftedness he's talking about. No Christian can claim they have nothing to offer to God's people. Every single believer of this church has something to offer this church. Because God's gifted you in that way. Every part of the body is significant, no matter how insignificant it may seem. So I find this interesting. Persecution is about to ramp up. And if we knew tonight that persecution for us is about a year away where we're going to start dying for our faith, and if we knew that tonight, what advice would you give to one another? Would one of your pieces of advice be use your spiritual gifts? Probably not. We'd probably talk about other things. We'd probably say, be faithful, hang in there. And Peter says, use your giftedness. Because that's how God extends grace. Look at verse 11. Peter offers two basic ways of using your spiritual gifts. Notice he says in verse 11, Whoever speaks, speak the oracles of God. Whoever serves, do it with the strength God supplies. So, Peter, not Paul, but Peter boiled all the spiritual gifts, 20 of them, down to two categories. Speaking and serving. Tongue and hands. Everybody's got... Tongue gifts or everybody's got hand gifts. Everybody speaks to encourage one another. Everybody works to encourage one another. You've got one of those two. That's how Peter summarizes it. You have one of the two. If you have the speaking gift, he says, don't just tell your opinions. Speak the oracles of God. What God has to say is much more important than what you think. So don't tell us what you think. Tell us what God says. And for those of you who have serving gifts, use them to minister to others in the strength God provides, especially one year from now when Nero starts coming down on your head, you use those hands of yours to serve others during persecution. Why? Look at verse 11 ends. In order that in everything God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ. Folks, whenever you use your spiritual gift, God gets the glory, not you. If I use my spiritual gift tonight to teach, I hope God uses it. It's not for my glory. It's for His glory. Whenever you use your spiritual gifts, it's not so people pat you on the back. Oh, you're such a wonderful person. It's for His glory. So the body's built up. So, they're not given so we can feel good about ourselves. Now, we do feel good about ourselves, but that's not the reason. It's not to give us glory. It's to bring Him glory. And then he wraps up verse 11. He just breaks out into a doxology. Thinking about spiritual gifts made him break out into a doxology, a song. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whenever that persecution comes, God is glorified when you're self-controlled and sober-minded, when you love one another earnestly, when you show hospitality without complaining, and when you use your spiritual gifts, God receives the glory. Now, two more verses and we'll close. Look at number four on your outline. The next thing he tells them is, do not be surprised when the suffering comes. Verse 12. Beloved, any time, first of all, by the way, let me stop there. Any time you see that word from a letter, the writer is really putting a heartfelt emphasis into what they're about to say. So take it as something that's really coming from the heart. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now let's look at those verses and then we'll close. Verse 12, Peter said, Don't be surprised when the suffering starts, one year from now, as though something strange were happening to you. Now hold on a second. Boy, Peter hasn't made an about face, hasn't he? Because at one time, do you remember what Peter believed about suffering? Go all the way back to Mark chapter 8 in the Gospels. And Jesus has made the confession at Caesarea Philippi, he's headed to the cross, and he tells his disciples, guys, I'm going to the cross, and the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, but on the third day I'll rise again. And Peter, time out, Jesus, come over here. And he pulled him off to the side, and the Bible says he rebuked Jesus. The only time in Scripture anybody ever rebuked Jesus. He rebuked him. Don't you talk like that. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiah's rule. Enough of the suffering talk. Get rid of it. Jesus rebuked him back. And now the very same guy that said that about suffering says, Beloved, don't think it's strange when suffering comes. It's Normal. Well, he's in an about face, hasn't he? Now, Peter thought of suffering not strange at all. Sometimes Christians are surprised when they suffer somewhat for being a Christian. We want everybody to respect us because we're believers. We want everybody to like us. We want everybody to honor us because We're going to church, and we're trying to do what's right, and we're trying to be good, and we want everybody to applaud. Oh, wow, you know, boy, you're doing so good. I I wish I was like you. And we want people to praise us and lift us up. But you know, not every culture does that. In fact, sometimes we as Christians feel a little hurt when other people misunderstand our faith or if we're treated harshly or made fun of or going to church or trying to obey the Lord, it kind of hurts our feelings sometimes. Peter reminded them and reminded us this reaction is not strange. In fact, it's normal. A culture that does not understand your faith is going to persecute you, make fun of you, or laugh at you, or not respect you. Happen. People don't like you resembling Jesus. Period. They don't. So, whenever somebody says something snide to you, or mocks you for being at church, or makes fun of you for trying to do this or that, or maybe gets angry at you because of the beliefs you have about homosexuality or whatever else is in Scripture that they disagree with, don't think it's strange. It's normal. That's what Peter said. Peter described their trials and persecution. Notice how he described it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Did the Holy Spirit give Peter insight that they were going to be dipped in oil and set afire? Why did he use the word fiery? And you know what the word Greek word he, what he used for fiery there? Pyro. We know that word. Pyromaniacs. So is he talking literally about fire? Possibly. It could have had a double meaning. Because the word also that he uses here literally was the word used when you reduced metals down and got the impurities out and reduce the metals down, you burn the metals, heated them up to get the purest form. He had that in mind too, because did you notice where he says um, that you may, that though something strange were happening to you, that, that the trial, when it comes upon you to test you, that's the word for the testing of metals. So maybe he was talking about both. You're, you're going to be fi- in the fire, literally. But whenever you do, God removes those impurities and brings you out pure. The trials were to prove, parisimos is used, to manifest their faith. God would allow the sufferings, they fit into His purpose for those believers so they were to endure with the proper attitude. And now look like at verse 13. But Peter added another element of the suffering, rejoice. They could also rejoice in the sufferings because when they experienced them, they were also sharing in Christ's sufferings. So Peter, about one year later, whenever Nero was about to crucify him upside down and kill him, which he did, by the way, Peter could realize that Jesus suffered on the cross for me and now I'm suffering on the cross for him. I'm sharing in the same sufferings. That he had the word "share." There is the exact same word that's used for communion in the whenever they observe the Lord's Supper together. Koinonia it means to partake together, fellowship together, commune together. You're sharing in the pathos, the suffering of Christ. It is good to share even anything with Christ, even his sufferings. And whenever we suffer for being a Christian, we experience what Jesus did during His time on earth. He continued on faithfully in His suffering, and so must we. God will glorify us, He says, just as He glorified His Son whenever we suffer as well. Paul, now Peter didn't say this, but Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He described suffering for a Christian like a pregnant woman. Paul said, a pregnant woman feels discomfort and pain at the childbirth, but when the delivery is over, the pain is replaced with joy that the child is here, and it was all worth it. Similarly, Peter says, and Paul both, we groan now under persecution. Persecution. But the future hope and joy for believers, when we get there, is it was all worth it. All the suffering and the persecution, and the snide comments and people misunderstanding you, all worth it when we get there. I don't know how far away suffering is in our country. I, I don't think any of us do. We may go years and the rest of our life and it'd just be no worse than it is right now. For believers in Peter's day, they were experiencing then, about what we are right now, subtle persecution for being a Christian. But it ramped up in about a year. If there ever comes a day in our country where ours ramps up to the point theirs did, you never know. If it ever does, we are to suffer gladly as he suffered for us. And then embrace the glory and the joy that is ours, just as it was his when God received him. So, that's where he ends, and we'll pick up three weeks tonight, starting in verse 14. Let's pray together. And if you have any questions or comments, you can see me afterwards, or feel free to email me. I'm always glad to hear from you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the good encouragement you give us. Lord, these are passages that we needed to hear God, help us to keep on loving, earnestly stretching to love those around us in church. God, help us to show hospitality and not complain about it. Lord, help us to use the spiritual gifts that you've given us, all for your glory, to build up the body that you've placed us in. And then, Father, help us at the fiery trials that come to us in different ways and various forms. Lord, not to be surprised at them, but to share in those gladly just as you shared in them for us. We're thankful for this. Thankful, Lord, that we can look to you as our example. So God, help us this Christmas season to walk with you, please you, and draw close to you during this time. Be the believers, the Christians you want us to be in church and outside of church as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.